Turn your Bibles this morning to Romans 8, verse 31. If you're visiting with us today, we've been in Romans 8 for quite some time. It is easily one of the richest chapters in all of Scripture. One of. There are others we could reference. but There have been riches and treasures here. But I know we have not even began to delve into, barely scratch the surface. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? You're new with us. The Apostle Paul is specifically referencing the things that he just spoke in the three preceding verses. Things like everything working together for you if you love God. Things like a God that foreknows in eternity past set His love upon a people who He has ordained, actually predestinated to bear the image of Christ. And those He called, those He called, He justifies. Those He justifies, He glorifies. What then shall we say to these things? And His conclusion is this, if those things are true about you, God is for you. There's no mistaking it. He's for you from eternity past. He foreknew you. He predestinated you. He's for you all the way out into eternity in a glorified state. He who did not spare His own Son, and here's the pinnacle of the whole matter. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. If He did that, Paul's logic here is... How will He not also with Him graciously give you all things? If He gives you the most valuable thing, He's not going to withhold any other thing from you. Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God has a chosen people. And I'll tell you this, nobody brings a charge against them. Because God Himself justifies them. 34, Who is to condemn? This is the verse we want to look at closely today. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. And notice the connection with verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see what he's saying? The fact that Christ would die for you and rise for you and go to the right hand of God for you and intercede for you. It's expressions of the love of Christ. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And look what he did. Look what God has done. Look at the certainties of all this. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Being saved never makes life easy. You may be slaughtered. You're being killed all the day long. Our brethren, somewhere, that's true. But you know what? Even if that happens, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's read verse 34 again. Slowly. Notice its construction. One question, who is to condemn? Four assertions. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If you are here today, visiting us, I'm certain that there are some of you that are sitting here, you don't know a whole lot about Christianity. That's good. You know what? We don't frown on you for that. We came here to this inner city to invite people just like you in here. We want you in here. Look, you, you might be like me. You come from a Catholic background. Number of us in here, that's, that's our background. You know how it was? Remember how it was? Everything was, it was mysterious, right? Things were secretive and they were shrouded. You never got the whole deal. It was always, you know, you got little bits and pieces of what they believed, but it was, it was always, it was always sort of hidden. Where's Matt at? He was a Jehovah's Witness. They never tell you the whole deal. It's always you come and, you know, you kind of got to go up the ladder to get a little more truth and a little more truth, which it isn't truth, but to, but to learn a little more about what they believe. Look, I want, I want to tell you something. If you don't know much about Christianity, Christianity isn't that way. We're not going to be like that. It's not going to be a bunch of shrouded things. We're going to tell you a little bit, bits and pieces, but you kind of got to, you, you kind of got to, Become one of us before we can tell you the whole deal. Before you can get the secret passwords. It's, it's not that kind of thing. You know what? Maybe you're trying to figure this whole thing out. What is Christianity? You're trying to figure out, you know, what is it that possesses a group of people like this to come together? I mean, maybe during the singing... Maybe you sensed a measure of joy among us and you've asked yourself, now where's that come from? Where's the excitement come from? Where's the appeal? What is this really all about? I mean, you realize, looking around, you guys ever looked at that building next door? I mean, you probably realize. See, we're all fa you guys are all facing it now. You can look right out there and you can see the broken windows. You probably realize it's not the fanciness of the neighborhood that draws all these people together. It isn't the roomy, spacious accommodations that we have. 
can see that. Look, I want to explain something to you because I know we have a lot of lost people here today. We have a lot of people in this place that are not Christians, young people and old people alike, visitors. The draw here, the incentive for the people coming together here has everything to do with hope. Hope, you ask. What hope do you all have? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you asked. I'll tell you this. It's a hope that God holds forth to bad people. You're sitting among a church made up of people who have sinned against God in some of the most grievous ways imaginable. Now look, I know there's a lot of places full of religion that you can go and they're going to tell you about what good people they are. I know there's places, lots of places like that. That's not what you came to here. We're bad people. Well, not so bad as we were, those of us that have been saved. But we've been very bad. We admit that. We have not been good people. We deserve eternal hell, period. We admit that too. But you, here's the thing. When you take bad people like us and give us a hope that we can escape all we deserve because of our badness. That's no little cause for excitement. That has an attraction to it. I want to tell you about a word. It's the one at the beginning of verse 34. Who is to condemn? Think with me about the word condemn, or its longer form, condemnation. That is the word that used to be translated damnation in the older English versions of our Bibles. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'll be damned. I grew up with a father that would say that all the time. We say they're cursing when they say that. Do you see why? It's because they pronounce a curse on themselves. They are, in fact, making a pronouncement that their sins will be fully charged against them and the absolute fullness of the punishment for those sins will be poured upon them. When Paul says in verse 34, who is to condemn? He is saying that no one can curse us, no one can damn us, no one can condemn us. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Listen, I want you to hear something. He does not say who is to condemn since we've not sinned. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say who's to condemn since we have good hearts. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't say who is to condemn since we've repented so thoroughly and believed so perfectly and been models of Christian uprightness. Look, whether or not it's possible for someone to bring condemnation against you does not hang on whether or not you've sinned or not. You have sinned. Our hope here at Grace Community Church does not rest on the fact that we've been good people. I've already explained to you, we haven't been that. Bad people ought to be damned. We deserve to be condemned. So what I'm saying to you is this. 
We have a hope here that somehow bad people are able to escape the condemnation they deserve. That's what our hope is. And where is that hope? It's found in the very guts of Romans 8.34. That's where our hope lies. Look at it. Four massive pillars of our faith. What are they? Notice, the Apostle does not try to quiet fears of condemnation by attempting to give you any confidence in anything you felt, anything you've done yourselves. Just read verse 34. Not a single reference to how well I've prayed or whether or not I've been baptized. If you're visiting today and you never come back again after today, I will help you always remember this, that that little church that meets in that yellow restaurant rests their hopes in nothing else and nothing other than these four things. Christ Jesus died for us. Christ Jesus was raised from the dead for us. Christ Jesus ascended to the right hand of God for us. And there, Christ Jesus is interceding, pleading for us. In Romans 8.34, the Apostle Paul contemplates these four marvelous pillars of truth. And in light of them, he challenges all of earth and all of heaven and all of hell to bring forth any condemnation against us. And they can't do it. They can't. It is totally outside the realm of possibility for even God Himself to condemn us as Christians. He can't. Do it. It's as if Paul says in this verse, away with all the trivial garbage and fluff associated with religion. Be done with it. I can't even think to mention it here. Don't talk to me about Mary. God forbid we talk about popes or priests. Be done with it. Beads and all that garbage. There's no place for it. Away with it. Don't talk to me about your good heart. The number of times you've been baptized. Don't talk to me about Muhammad. And paradise. And virgins. Away with it all. If a man is to escape condemnation, there are not many ways. Paul sees only Christ. Man's hope is only in Christ. We avoid the righteous condemnation of God only through Christ. At the heart of Christianity is Christ. The crucifixion of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. The ascension of Christ. And the intercession of Christ. It's all about Christ. Friend, that's where our hope in this place lies. And we came here to this inner city to say nothing else but that. And the day this church's message is not that, may God wipe it off the face of this earth. It's that, and it's that alone. Nowhere else. My desire this morning is to take this 34th verse of Romans 8 and address those of you in this room who are not Christians. Those of you who aren't sure about how to escape God's condemnation of sinners. Those of you who don't know what it is to be born again. Those of you who are sort of wandering aimlessly through life. You're looking for something. 
knowing what? It's to you I appeal this morning. There's, there's three seats right up here, Johnny. Look here. The Bible describes people as being in one of two groups. Only two. There are not three. There are not ten. There are believers and there are unbelievers. Those who have faith, those who do not have faith. 2 Corinthians 6.15 What portion does a believer Share with an unbeliever. There you have both groups. God identifies them for us. Believers are called by many descriptive names and titles in the Bible. You can probably think of a number of them. They come to your mind. I'll give you a few. Believers are called Christian, disciple, saved, born again, saint, blessed of the Lord, child of God, vessels of mercy, elect of God, righteous, ransomed, new creation in Christ, living stones, heirs of God, Join heirs with Christ, and the list goes on. Unbelievers, on the other hand, are called by a whole other assortment of names. If you think it's really no big deal to not be a Christian, I just want you to listen to what the Bible calls you. Cursed. Children of the devil. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath, vessels of wrath, chaff to be burned, lawbreakers, those who live according to the flesh, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, and a number of other names I won't take the time now to mention. These names and descriptions alone, I'll tell you this, they ought to cause you some degree of anxiety. It's the second group that I want to address right now. You who are not Christians. Let's take the Apostle Paul's question at the beginning of verse 34 and apply it not to Christians. Let's apply it to you. Who is to condemn you? We know that for a Christian, the answer to that is a resounding no one. But for you who have never surrendered all to Christ... The answer is altogether different. The swift and awful answer from God's Word is that condemnation dogs you like your shadow. Wherever you run, you are condemned. The darkness can't hide you. Try as you might, hide where you will. Condemnation is always at your heels. You are condemned already. Jesus says something in Matthew 12 that ought to really stop and make you take notice. You know what He says? You see what I'm doing right now? I'm going to tell you something Jesus says because I want to find you out. He says this. Matthew 12, 37. 
by your words, you will be condemned. Who is to condemn if you're not a Christian? Jesus says, your words will condemn you. Now, does that strike any of you strange that I should bring that up? After all, I could have made a case that God's word condemns you. The Savior himself condemns you. God Almighty condemns you. Adam's sin condemns you. Your own sin condemns you. Your conscience condemns you. Your unbelief condemns you. All of these are true. I could take you to Bible verses to prove it. Let me tell you something that I know. Lost folks are slippery fellows. all greased up with their own ideas and opinions that they are okay. Most men don't feel they are under God's condemnation, so they assume they are not. The sun shines, birds chirp, food's on the table. God must have a wonderful plan for me. That's how men reason. How many times have I heard it? I was sick and God healed me. I know things are right with me and God. Listen to me. The Lord Jesus Christ says that all you have to do is look at a man's words. I'm going to find you out. You're here today and your words betray you. They give you away. They set the record straight every time. The question I'm asking you right now is not whether you think you're a Christian or not. The question I'm asking you is this. Do your words betray that you love Christ? That's all I'm asking. Do they betray that? You know what? Let's all be honest. Come on, you guys came in here today. Let's not waste the time. Let's, don't daydream. Just give me your attention just for a little bit. Use this time profitably. Jesus Christ Himself, who knows men perfectly, and who is the Savior of men, and never loved men more than anyone else, He warns you with this warning. You will be condemned by your words. You know what? He who knows the hearts of men perfectly knows that your words will give you away every time. Now look, if your words give away that you're not a Christian, I'm not telling you it's hopeless. I'm telling you there is hope and I want to show you that hope today. But we've got to find you out first. Let your words be a witness to you. Man, woman, if you were to go into a court of law right now, would your words in that court testify that you're a Christian? Would there be sufficient evidence by your words you've spoken over the last 24 hours to convict you of being a child of God? Don't tell me you love Christ, but you manage to never talk about Christ. Our words will always ring with the note of what we love. Your words will always give away where your heart is. Who is to condemn you? Your words. This is not about whether you're always talking smut and filth. This isn't whether you go around all the time gossiping and blaspheming the name of God and lying. Now look, those things obviously betray lost men. 
That's not what I'm saying. That's not mainly what I want you to focus on right now. If those things are true, you already know you're in trouble. But what I'm talking to you about is what you don't do with your words and what you don't say with your words and what you don't find coming off your lips. Don't have much to say about Christ. And look, if you don't have much to say about Him, you don't love Him. And if you don't love Him, you give the surest evidence that you don't know Him. For to know Him is to love Him. His beauty and magnificence are dazzling. And every one of us that have had our eyes open to that, we know it. We know it. We've never gotten over it. It consumes us. All who have been given eyes to behold Him are forever entranced. We're stunned by it. That's what we want more than anything else. Look, your silence about Christ is a booming, thunderous witness to the fact that you've never been captivated by His glory. All I want you to do is cut to the chase here. You know, be honest. Because I'll tell you this, you of all men are most miserable and most in danger if you go around believing everything's okay when it's not okay. The sick man who doesn't know he's sick doesn't seek to be cured of his sickness. Who is to condemn? If your words are not full of Christ, who is to condemn? Your own mouth condemns you. People, is this not the truth? I mean, Christian, my, my Christian brothers and sisters here, we know this. We know that. I mean, we, we have... God has given us an ability to smell that out. People come, we know how it is. They come in among us and, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian. They want to tell you about their faith, but you know, you immediately begin to pick up. This person has nothing to say about Christ. And there's an odor that be, begins to come that you say, something's not well here. Something smells of death here. We find this to be true. The mouth of the Christian makes their boast in the Lord. Listen to me. It doesn't matter that you call yourself, what you call yourself, or what you think you are. Unless your life gives away that you truly are what you say you are. It's not me saying this. It's the Savior of mankind that says this to you. He looks at you and He looks at your words and He just shakes His head and He says, condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. But right here, Right here, it strikes me as something that you and I probably ought to weep over. The word condemnation, we can read it, it can be spoken, we can take it, we can go in our Bibles, we can carefully and biblically define it. And for all that, you know what happens today? Men hear what we say, and they don't fear. Even Christians today often grow numb 
to condemnation and don't tremble for their lost friends and family. Has it ever occurred to you that a nation that no longer trembles at the sound of words like condemnation is a nation that is cursed and forsaken? I've been reading lately from a book written by Ichabod Spencer called The Pastor's Sketches. In this book, Spencer, who lived in the early 1800s, he presents chapter after chapter of dialogue he had with people who he sought to lead to Christ. It's, a, it's an amazing book. Do you want to know what sticks out in my mind about the people he dealt with? One after another, he came across folks that the Spirit of God had prepared. There was a dread over their sin. They had a fear of God. I'm talking about lost people, unbelievers. They were convicted that their sin made God angry with them. It troubled them. There was fear. There was concern. There was distress. Condemnation was real. They felt themselves hopelessly being drawn into the jaws of this thing. And one after another, they fled to Christ. Well, what do we see today? Just recently, a few of us were talking with a lost woman about her sins. And it suddenly occurred to me. She isn't really afraid. Maybe you're thinking, well, if that's common enough. It's common for people to sin and not be afraid. I know it's common. That's exactly what we ought to find troubling. Right at that moment, it hit me. I felt this pang of desperation come across me. The fear of God has been taken away from our country. God rarely sends us anyone who is genuinely afraid. All I could think is, woe, woe, woe unto the people or nation who no longer fears God and His wrath and His condemnation. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come. And when He comes, John 16, 8, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You tell me, what does that mean when we look around and we don't see people who are convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment? What curse and gloom and shadow lay over a land when the Spirit of God goes silent and the conviction departs. It's like the people of Ephraim in the book of Hosea. Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. Leave them alone! There's something in those three words that ought to make us shudder. They strike me as three of the most terrifying words in all of our Bibles. America is joined to idols. Leave them alone. My friend, when God says leave them alone, you are alone. When God forsakes you, you are forsaken. And men don't tremble. God help us. Listen, I ask you, if you've come in here today, may God do this. Is there not just one of you 
somewhere in this room? You have a sense of your sin and you are afraid? Is there not one of you who feels convicted? You ask, how much conviction does a sinner need in order to be prepared to come to Christ? I'll tell you this. He needs just enough conviction to know and feel that he cannot save himself. Are there none here feeling just that? Is it just the food at lunch you want? Is that all you want? Is there anything deeper in any of you? Will you daydream when Christ is set forth, is crucified and risen and at God's right hand interceding? Do you have no sense? of what it is Christ has done for you? Can you see nothing in this verse that just begs your consideration? Do none of you feel a tug at your heart to come to Christ and to come right now? If God put His own Son to death for your sin and then victoriously raised Him from the dead, has now set Him at His own right hand to intercede for you, will you harden yourself? Can you imagine how it must have astonished the angels to witness what it cost Christ to redeem us? Can you imagine how it must have astonished the angels that God would even redeem us? Folks, a third of their own fell. God offered them no salvation. Can you imagine even more than that how it must amaze them how it must astonish them. What they must think when they see men all wretched and miserable wallowing in their filth and hating Christ. Hating what Christ has done in love for the ungodly. God sends for you. Listen to Spurgeon. We never sent to Him. He sent to us. Suppose that after we had all sinned, we'd fallen on our knees and cried, Oh, Father, forgive us! Suppose that day after day, we'd been with many piteous tears and cries, supplicating and entreating forgiveness of God. It would be great love then that He would devise a way of pardoning us. But no, it was the very reverse. God sends an ambassador of peace to us when we sent none to Him. Man turned his back on God and went farther and farther from Him and never thought of turning his face toward his best friend. It is not man that turns beggar to God for salvation. It is, if I may dare to say it, as though the eternal God Himself did beg of His creatures to be saved. Jesus Christ has not come into the world to be sought for, but to seek that which is lost. Young people, what are some of you thinking? Oh well, I hope to get to heaven in the end. But if I end up facing condemnation, oh well, I, I just grit my teeth and deal with it then. 
Like what? Like it's nothing more than visiting the dentist to get a cavity filled? You just go and do it and it's over? Judgment day is real. Eternity hastens. Eternity, eternity, it's coming. And it is long. I know you can't imagine this. None of us can. But suppose for 10 billion years, there you are withering under the absolutely righteous billows of God's wrath. And suppose what it would be like if you were a demon there in that lake of fire. You know what you will know? Every ounce of pain and suffering is exactly according to the perfect and absolutely pristine justice of God. You would know that. You would know God was doing what is absolutely fair to you, what is absolutely right to be done to you. You would know God is in His dazzling holiness and glory doing what is absolutely perfectly righteous. As a demon. But friend, you come in here today lost. And I want you to think about what it will be like. I know again you can't imagine this, but if after 10 billion years, there you are as you. And God beckoned to you and He sent to you and He said, here is a free gift in My Son. Let me describe this to you. My Son, I crushed Him. I gave it everything that sin demanded. And I ground Him. And I raised Him victorious from the dead. I lifted Him up to show the world I was satisfied in everything that He did. And I raised Him victorious to My right hand. He interceded for sinners. And I offered it to you. And now there you are, damned under my wrath. You refused it. The demons didn't have it to refuse. And here it is offered to you. And you count it as nothing. You refuse it. You refused it. Christ died. Christ rose from the dead. Christ ascended to His Father, sat down to intercede for His people. And you refused it. It was all done for sinners. It was a gift of God's mercy. And you refused it. What intolerable agony will it be for you to know that God had made the perfect way of escape for you? All in Christ. Dying, He saves. And rising, He justifies. And there at the right hand, to intercede, ruling and reigning and pleading for sinners. And you refused it. Do you not hear what Romans 8.34 says? Condemnation is not possible if you are trusting the One who died and rose and is now seated beside the Father. The old Puritan John Flavel imagines 
God the Father and God the Son talking together before the foundations of the world. Listen to what he says. Here's the Father. God the Father speaking to God the Son. My Son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now I open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ returns, O my Father, such is my love too and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father responds, But my son, If thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And the son answers, Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Jesus Christ has paid the last might. Why then will you go to hell? Why then will you not be saved? Why? Is He not just the perfect Savior? Does He not suit your sinful case perfectly? Call out to Him right this very second. Lord, have mercy on me. His mercy is great. Call upon the Lord and you will be saved. Amen. You're dismissed.